Welcome to Thinking Ahead, your leading edge insights podcast. Each episode reveals the latest insights on today's consumers and offers a sneak peek of tomorrow's marketplace. Stop guessing what's next and start thinking ahead. And welcome back to another episode of Thinking Ahead, a GFK Insights podcast. I'm Hannah Leiter, your host, and I hope that everyone is enjoying a great summer. I have a returning guest with me today, Joe Beyer, Executive Vice President of Consumer Insights at GFK North America. Joe recently presented new findings from this year's Future Buy report, which had some really great insights that he has kindly agreed to expand on during today's episodes for all of you and for me. So you're probably wondering when I say expanding, what exactly is he expanding on? In today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the new ways that the past year has cultivated for brands to connect with their customers and get them to shop in new and innovative ways. But I'm not the expert, so let's bring in Joe. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Hannah, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Very well. Enjoying a good summer, as you referred to. So it's all good. It's going by too fast, but uh, otherwise, fantastic. Yeah, it always feels like that somehow. Well, the Future Buy study, as I referenced, it is a study that has been collecting shopper data for the last decade or so. Have all the questions been consistent throughout the years to kind of show a longitudinal longitudinal look at the shopper behaviors? Primarily, yes. Um, there are questions that we have evolved into. As, as you can imagine, the shopper space has been tremendously dynamic over that decade. So we had to kind of find a balance between trending and keeping all the questions consistent, but also adding new questions as shopper behaviors and modalities kind of evolved and changed. The whole idea, for example, we have a lot this year on uh, shopping over social media, buying, actually making purchases on social media, which 10 years ago was non-existent, right? And now it's really an important rising trend. So we've had to kind of keep it, uh, we keep kind of a baseline of foundational trending that's can be very helpful for that longer longitudinal view. But we also layer on top of that, you know, new uh, emerging modalities and understanding those as well. Right. Always evolving. Well, I know that last year, FutureBuy came out and the data had actually been collected before the pandemic. So that must have right. given a starkly different view of insights between two waves than you've had before. Yeah, that's right. We fielded the 2020 wave, the predecessor wave to the one we're going to talk about today, mainly in uh, January and February of last year. So we just preceded the, the pandemic and the wave we're going to talk about today was was fielded uh, basically earlier in 2021. So we have kind of a pre-wave and then we have a wave that was really done in the midst of COVID. Um, so yeah, we have some interesting trending <laughs> to say the least. I mean, one of the biggest themes there is not shocking, but the level of movement has been pretty stark, which is this whole idea of migrating uh, out of pure in-store shopping uh, into both pure online shopping, but not just online shopping, a lot of rise in omni shopping as well. So people we see some have pulled away from stores completely out of concern for health. Others um, have pulled back, but not completely abandoned stores, but instead have kind of developed new hybrid omni-channel shopping techniques that have them sort of blending the, the best of both in-store and online. And we've seen that the survey looks at about 16 different categories 
and very consistently, consistently, I think there's one category where it wasn't the case, but we've seen kind of large swings uh, very consistently across 16 different categories in that dynamic of, again, pulling back from being a pure in-store shopper to being someone who either shops purely online for things or uh, blends together in kind of a hybrid omni-channel methodology. Do you think that the pullback from physical stores, of course, we did have a global pandemic, so there was that concern of health. Was it mostly because of that or was it kind of something that was already in the works of happening because of consumers' desires to be more online? Yeah, it's a little of both. I mean, we saw, you know, we saw online and everybody knows just looking at the industry from a 30,000 foot level, we know that online already had momentum, you know, more online shopping already had a lot of momentum coming in. Um, and, but, you know, like a lot of, a lot of just discussions of what the pandemic did, it was really an accelerant. It really took that and really um, bumped it, depending on who you listen to. Some folks say that online got, you know, three or four years worth of growth in one year. Uh, I don't know that we know exactly what the next three or four years were going to be, but it's safe to say that, you know, over the long view, we haven't really seen the movement in the numbers that we saw from 2020 to 2021. Uh, there's no real historical parallel to the, to the jumps that we saw in folks shifting their channel preferences. So our, our conclusion is it may have a little bit of baseline trending toward online in there, but it's really... Uh, mainly because of the pandemic and mainly because of folks wanting to sort of hunker down and not expose themselves in physical stores. One area that I thought was really interesting in that presentation that you recently gave, which of course I will be leaving a link for all of you in the show notes so that you can take a look at that as well. But you had a part that you talked about new ways that brands are giving consumers experiences along with the product. And that's really what I want to talk about here today. So talk to me about what opportunities or what opportunities that brands now have with consumers first for community post pandemic. Yeah, well, it's not shocking again, that there's been a real um, starvation of community, a real isolation, if you will, that's come with the pandemic. And what we're seeing now that, um, we're coming out of the pandemic, at least in most areas of the U.S. at least, um, there's a real hunger for that now to kind of reconnect. And we think that for brands, it's really a golden opportunity window right now to start creating some of those communities around your brands, around you as a retailer, and really uh, nurture them and help them connect and grow. And there's a couple of examples that we think are kind of interesting. If you look at, um, you know, there's, there's, there's different ways to do this. There's communities that are a little more organic. Like for example, we see with Trader Joe's, they have such a fanatical fan base that their um, their communities kind of grow up somewhat organically. So there's all kinds of um, communities online that are kind of fan groups for different products of theirs or different eating types like the vegan group um, you know, favorite product groups, those kinds of things, healthier meals. So those kind of grew up pretty organically and naturally just because their fan base is so enthusiastic about their products. Um, there's other community plays that were a little more engineered, like, you know, for example, Walmart famously during the pandemic, uh, converted some of their stores into basically drive in movie theaters and folks came in and they were able to go and get concessions and snacks. Uh, they moved all that, those sections to the front of the store. So they were able to go into the store 
uh, not have to sort of navigate the whole store, but just pop in, grab their concessions, and then you know sort of pop out. So there's um, you know different plays on that. There's a million different ways to do that, but we think that brands would be wise to seize the moment, if you will, because right now there's a lot of energy and people really want to connect, uh, you know, to other like-minded shoppers as well as to brands that they really embrace and want to support and, and feel that align well with their values and with the way they see the world. So a community is a big play right now for sure. Yeah. I, I could definitely see that that would be a huge win or success for a brand to literally have its own little subculture of customers. It's it's really interesting. Now, another emerging trend that's been out there that I know that you've talked about before on the podcast is personalization. Is this still something that's emerging that customers are really looking for in their shopping experience? Absolutely. And uh, you know, similarly, we think this has also gotten accelerated by COVID. And there's any number of surveys about the importance of personalization. One that um, that we cite is you know, there were we, there was a survey done of about 10,000 shoppers, not the future by survey, but a, a separate survey. And the number one thing that shoppers said that makes their favorite brands stand out was catering to their unique needs. So, you know, it's no secret that we live right now in a culture where there's really the rise of the individual. Uh, it's a little bit of me, 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 and I want things to be uh, customized for me. And therefore, yes, there's a, along with what we talked about a real natural energy right now for community. There's also a continuing and very natural energy uh, towards personalization. And we know from various metrics that when you do successfully pull off personalization as a brand or as a retailer, a lot of very virtuous things fall off of that, cascade down from there. Um, one is you're much more likely to be, to be able to charge a premium for your product or your service. You're also you tend to see uh, bigger baskets. If you're a retailer, for example, you'll engender bigger market baskets um, on those transactions. And also over time, you also engender much more uh, durable and lasting loyalty with your shoppers if you're able to kind of connect with them on that more personal basis. So um, again, it's a really, really important um, goal. It's not easy. Um, it requires uh, a lot of a lot of art along with the science and, and a lot of data as well, typically. But um, it is an important goal, we think, for our for our brands and retailers that we talk to. And um, again, all kinds of great things cascade down from it if you can pull it off at scale. Is there a point where personalization can be too personalized, though? Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we know that from, from our future by study, the, the dark side, if you will, of personalization or the, the downside of it is that shoppers kind of have a basic understanding of how personalization programs tend to work. Uh, and that is to say that they tend to mine and collect tons of data about their historical purchase behaviors through you know multiple platforms, or they're buying data uh, to complement that as well. And then they'll spin back to the shoppers, you know, programs that are customized for them. And everybody knows this from, you know, just even being on Amazon and simple, simple examples, right? You know, you bought this, you might also like this. That's the basic example of it, but it goes obviously much further than that. And so there's this sort of simmering concern and people tell us that in general, they're not super comfortable with the amount of information that brands and retailers have on them. And, you know, we've all had the situations where we feel 
a little bit um, of a violation in terms of things hitting a little too close to home and brands or retailers revealing how much they know and telling us that they know too much to make us comfortable. So it's kind of the, we, cut, we talk about the creepy line um, and we've all probably had our own personal experiences like that. So, you know, famously at when we used to have cocktail parties, you would always have the conversation about somebody who had uh, been talking in their kitchen in front of their Alexa, right? And they were talking about some bizarre product category that they never really purchased. And maybe there was someone in their circle of friends having a baby, for example. And then next thing they know, they're on their computer and they're getting ads for Pampers. And it's like, what's going on here? Um, so, and we've all had, you know, maybe it's something you, you watched on your smart TV and now you're getting fed content on Facebook that has to relate to some subject that's kind of a red herring for you that you know could only have surfaced and been on somebody's radar because of what you did on your smart TV, right? Um, so, you know, we've all had those moments and they're very personal and, you know, they're different, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that two things are true pretty universally of those experiences. One is they feel terrible. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of negativity. Like I said, you feel kind of violated, like your privacy has been violated. And two, they're kind of step back moments in terms of how you evaluate your relationship with the brand or the retailer behind the program, right? So, and that evaluation is not gonna be more positive. If anything, the vast majority of the time, you're gonna pull back. You're maybe going to totally discontinue your relationship with them or dramatically reduce it um, and go other places. So, you know, we talk to our, um, you know, our colleagues and our clients who are building, you know, they're charged basically a lot of them with building, building those relationships, right? I mean, that's really the charge of marketing at the end of the day is, you know, build productive, lasting relationships with our consumer and our shopper base. And so from that standpoint, when those programs cross that creepy line, it's relatively catastrophic for them, given their mission is supposed to be building and they're destroying. So we really try to impress on our clients that while this is important, it needs to be done with a real sensitivity to how much information you're acting upon and how much you're revealing and making sure that you don't cross that, you know, creepy line with your, with your consumer base. Yeah. I, th I think everyone has at that moment where you're online shopping for a gift for someone. And then, you know, you go to some site for gift ideas and then magically there is the item you were just looking at on the side on, on the display ad. I think we've all had that. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks in this space and one, one guy I remember basically told me, you know, he was deep on the data side of this. And he's like, he basically told me that if, if consumers had any idea like what we know about them, they would be horrified. So, you know, the level of concern is still there, even assuming that shoppers and consumers know probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's known about them. But if they really knew the entire iceberg, there would be, uh, you know, probably a revolution on our hands. So <laughs> it's a place to be very careful, you know, if you're a brand or a retailer, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I know we did... Um... I had a conversation with Ralph Swinton on the podcast, which I'll leave a link for that, that talked a little bit about that with the personalization or the privacy element. Um, and he really spoke a lot about how, you know, it, consumers sometimes just don't really understand the scope of the shopping behavior that they're able to capture through an online platform. Well, they don't. And they also, one of the other big blind spots, I believe, and this isn't necessarily data supported, but just a little more anecdotal, just walking around and being, knowing a little bit about this world, um, 
I don't think they really understand um, points of the way their data gets fused and connected through different sources, right? I think they think, okay, I'm doing this thing on my computer, it kind of lives on my computer, or I'm doing this thing on my Alexa, it kind of lives on my Alexa. And where they tend to get freaked out is the, the data reality is that the value of the folks that live by mining this data is by putting this data together, right? And understanding the more, the, the full tableau of kind of who you are and how you think and what you do in a much more holistic way. And I think, you know, that example I gave of Alexa showing up on your computer kind of tends to freak people out because there's this, there's this underlying naivete, if you will, about the data that they're providing really doesn't live in silos at the end of the day. There's whole huge industries that basically make their money by putting the, all these data sources together. And I think, you know, again, that's largely opaque to a lot of um, just one of the mill consumers and shoppers who don't necessarily understand that. So that's kind of the big, big dirty secret of the, of the industry to some degree. Um, <laughs> well, so now, anyway. now we've revealed it. So sorry, yep, industry. <laughs> there you go. You got one big secret today. At least. Exactly. No, it definitely seems like it is because of course now that's some of the unknown or the bad sides, but people do want personalization. So for brands, it really is a delicate, uh, area to be in and something that they need to make sure that they have balance. Yeah, it is. And and one of the things we're trying to sort of recommend well is, is rethinking the whole personalization model, right? So the goal has been, I'm going to collect as much information as I can on you. And then I'm going to spin programs back to you that are reflective of that the knowledge, right? So it's a model and it's very data dependent. Um, you know, what we are recommending is maybe thinking more holistically about personalization is also being attainable through forward-looking programs. Like, for example, think about um, loyalty programs. And, you know, there's Amazon Smiles is a good example of this. There's all kinds of these programs. But basically, they're programs that enable you to accumulate your loyalty points um, and then, you know, either redeem them for product or discounts, the typical stuff, or in a lot of cases, uh, giving giving consumers a full menu of uh, kind of charities or causes they can donate those points to, you know, everything from, you know, Greenpeace to, you know, pick your, your favorite charity, right? So um, that we believe, or we know that also gives shop, shoppers a very strong sense of having had a personalized experience, right? Because I, I got to make my choices and align with the charities that are most resonant to me. That's a very personal journey. But in doing that, as the as the uh, brand or the retailer, I haven't had to, I've still delivered and checked that personalization box, but I haven't had to do that by relying on historical data, which again, puts me at risk of this creepy factor. So we think that's just a safer model uh, and both models are legitimate and can work. But I think the industry has been very focused on the data side. And we think there's a way to open up the thinking a little bit to enable other models that don't depend as much on that. Yeah. Great, great points. Well, along with personalization and this online shopping on, because we've kind of talked now a little bit about the online shopping on brand sites themselves, but there is this emerging technology or popularity of revolving around social media, which you alluded to a little bit in the beginning of our conversation. Uh, but the ability basically to buy something without actually leaving a social platform. I know for me, uh, TikTok's recent partnership with Shopify is something that comes to mind. So what are consumers' attitudes and desires in this area? 
Yeah, this has really been a, a hot area. And as I mentioned in the open, you know, one that's really gotten some pretty major acceleration through um, through the COVID period. I think we saw there's right now um, the penetration is healthy. We see through our future by data that about just under 30% of folks say that they've used a buy button on social media to date. And that's up about four points from 2020. So a nice, pretty robust bump. So, um, you know, not every, it's not certainly not universal yet, but very robust base and growing in terms of people's behaviors. And if you look at, if you take that apart by generation, you get a, a even, even a more sort of um, optimistic picture in terms of where this is going, because you see that uh, for uh, Gen Z's, for example, our youngest, uh, that number is 50%. Uh, if you look at Millennials, it's about 56%, and both of those are up about 10 points. So, you know, the shoppers of the future, if you will, are really taking this on and embracing it um, and really find social media to be a very um, great way for them to shop because, to your point, you know, you're, you're there anyway. You're in the ecosystem of whatever social media platform you favor, and that's a place where we already know, and historically, social media has been already a very powerful platform for influence, right? And the whole, the whole idea of influencers kind of grew up in, in the social media ecosystem. Um, but now the distance between influence and transaction has gotten basically, um, has disappeared, right? Because now it's as simple as a click to act on that, act on the way you've been influenced to make that into a transaction right away. And we know that for folks that are doing this, there's a couple um, benefits that they enjoy. One is that um, a lot of them think it's fun. So we, you know, we get high ratings for social media shopping being fun. And that kind of makes sense because you're, you know, in many cases, you're doing it in the context of being connected to folks that you presumably like and are in your social uh, sphere, right? Um, people also feel like it's convenient and easy, which it certainly is, given you don't even have to pop out of the, out of the platform to make the transaction. And they also like the fact that they are, feel like they're getting well-targeted products for them. So they feel like the social media networks are good at understanding them and their needs and therefore making smart, valuable recommendations to them. So those are the three things that are really driving the most use of it. The one area where it's a bit of a barrier still is people do express a lack of comfort with the amount of advertising that they see on social media. So again, maybe a close cousin to the creepy factor uh, notion we were talking about before within personalization, folks feel like it's become in many, in some cases, a little too commercialized and they're not comfortable being you know, bombarded by advertising. So again, as practitioners in this space, we certainly would recommend that brands explore um, you know, how they want to do business with social media as a distinct uh, distribution channel as they think about reaching their market. But like personalization, they need to kind of do that in a context that's not gonna be turning folks off in terms of the amount of average. And that's harder, of course, as a brand because you're not necessarily controlling the, um, the ecosystem, you know, that's controlled by the social media player. So I think, you know, the partnerships you talked about, I think that's a place where those goals can be better aligned and there could be a conversation about doing it in the right way, um, you know, both from an, an ease and uh, exciting standpoint for shoppers, but also in a way that's not going to turn them off with too much, ad, too much advertising. For a brand that's currently 
reallocating or allocating their resources. How would you rank or prioritize these types of creative ways to help your customers shop? So that's brand community, personalizations, and the social media shopping. Well, I think it, you're not going to like this answer, but I think it really depends on the brand and the category, right? So <clears throat> for example, if you're an apparel brand, I don't know, Gap, pick, you know, Aeropostale, whatever you, whatever you want, pick your favorite platform, you know, but you're basically selling apparel and you're selling something that's inherently very visual, right? So there, I would say that I would put my social media card first, social media shopping card first, because we know that that's a really vibrant platform and a vibrant uh, channel for those kinds of purchases because they, they're very visually oriented, right? So there, that's pretty, that would be a pretty clear priority for me. Um, now, you know, toggle over to, you know, brand I used to work on, Johnson's Baby, right? And okay, now we have a lot of new moms that are trying to understand how to take care of this new creature that they just brought home from the hospital. Well, their community is absolutely vital, right? Because you can share tips and tricks and commiserate and all that. So when when that's your business, um, you know, we your shopper has very different needs. Uh, and so we would say in that example, it would be pretty clear that community would dominate your, you know, your priorities in creating and help, you know, seeding those communities. So I think you really kind of have to look at that question on a category by category basis, brand by brand, because the answers I think are going to be different. So the answer to that is uh, email or call up Joe Buyer if you'd like to know for your specific brand. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's the, that's the ultimate answer to all these questions, Hannah. Exactly. Thinking ahead, what is the future of hybrid shopping as we kind of get out of this pandemic era, hopefully completely, uh, and move on, uh, you know, to new innovations and new current events that will happen? Yeah, I think we're already kind of starting to see it as we emerge. You know, there's going to be, we're projecting that there's going to be a, um, a bit of a returning to base in terms of uh, the, the crazy online growth numbers for e-commerce we think are going to come back to earth. And we think there's going to be growth there in kind of the, the high single digits, if you will. Uh, over 2021, and we are going to see this migration back into stores uh, really take shape. And we think that a lot of people have, you know, developed, developed more creative ways of shopping, delivery, um, you know, buy, in, uh, buy online, pick up in store, the whole BOPUS thing we know has really exploded. So we think a lot of those methodologies are going to be retained, but there's going to be more in-store activity kind of sprinkled in as people become more and more comfortable going back to stores. So we think shoppers are gonna be um, really more sophisticated than ever before in terms of blending together all of these different modalities that are now available to them. Um, and that Omni is really gonna be one of the stickier elements. Uh, we're gonna see you know, folks really embracing this Omni um, mindset where they really don't care or differentiate you know, whether a touch point is in a store or uh, online, it's just whatever works for them. And so, you know, all the more important, and we've been preaching this for years and years, so it sounds a little like a broken record, which we can't say anymore because no one knows what that means, but um, how about CD? No, that doesn't quite work. But anyway, so, you know, the, the, the brands and the retailers that we advise, you know, you have to get Omni right. It's not a, it's table stakes now. It's not negotiable. It's not a special thing. It's just, it's meat and potatoes. So you got to make sure you can enable that experience and that fluidity across the different 
uh, modalities of shopping and, and, and make that a seamless experience for your shoppers. So that's never been more important, we think, than now in this post-pandemic where the, that blending has really happened a bit faster than it might have otherwise because of COVID and people are really um, layering, again, layering more in-store time on top of what have been more digital or more omni experiences that they were, were forged during COVID. Really quickly, or really quickly, are there any other long-term shopping trends that we should be looking for? Yeah, one we didn't really talk about, but is really important is, uh, again, a little bit of a broken record here, but uh, sustainability. You know, we're seeing this rise in uh, focus, particularly among our youngest uh, shopper groups, millennials and, and post-millennials in particular, of just really being laser focused on uh, a brand's footprint and a, and a company's commitment to sustainability. You know, we talk to a lot of food clients and we're kind of, we're kind of saying to them, let's envision a future where, you know, you not only have the nutritional uh, label that's required, you know, by the FDA with your nutritional facts, which now is on every food product, imagine a label next to that, that's a that's basically giving consumers a scorecard about the product's environmental impact, right? So how much water did this take? What's the carbon footprint? What was, you know, the, the, the distance to market? Uh, you know, all these different metrics that people are now really focused on. People don't just want to look at the head of lettuce in the produce department. They want to know, like, what's this head of lettuce's journey? You know, what's its backstory, if you will? It's almost like a superhero head of lettuce. So they want to know, you know, where, how did it get here? Where was it grown? Well, who picked it? You know, so there's a whole new um, emerging and accountability, if you will. Um, that sounds maybe a little too negative, but people are asking questions now. And it's not just, oh, the lettuce is here. It looks great. It's I want to know all these other metrics related to this journey. And, you know, we we think particularly I'm just using food as an example, but you can generalize it to other categories as well, you know, and you're already seeing some real signs of it, right? And so we just think that this, the whole rise of sustainability as a number one, or, or at least a high level concern with a great deal of the shopper base is something that brands and retailers really need to get ahead of. And, and a lot of them are, you know, there's a lot of good activity in market that's kind of meeting that, but we don't see that slowing down anytime soon. And you asked about kind of longer term we think that one's really going to be on the rise for you know the foreseeable future. Certainly, we're not going to solve global warming anytime soon. So, um, you know, we think that's a long-term thing to play out, and you know, we really encourage brands and, and retailers to be ready. Yeah, absolutely. Well, lots of information here. I'm sure that we could keep talking if we wanted to, Joe, but unfortunately we are coming to the end of the episode. So I want to ask you one last question. As an expert in Shopper Insight, what is your best personal advice in taking insights like the ones we've talked about here today and turning them into an actionable business decision? Yeah, great question. I think the one thing I would encourage folks to think about, and again, we're kind of in the insights business, you know, in terms of what we do as our core business model and helping helping companies get stronger foundational insights to inform action, which is kind of what you're describing. And the one area that I think we clients tend to skip over, and I think my advice would be to focus more on this, which is how do you socialize and motivate your organization to act on the findings? So it's not just generating the findings and having a share back meeting with us and you know, a small group digests them. How do you enroll the larger organization that's going to be needed to put these into, you know, action steps and actual reality 
programs. Um, you know, do you do that through workshops? Do you do that through, uh, you know, video vignettes, whatever it is, you know, infographics? How do you how do you spread the religion, if you will, throughout your organization once you have those insights in hand? And how do you enroll that broader functional organization uh, and point them all, get them all kind of pulling on the rope in the same direction in terms of making things happen in market? And where we see that not really thought through or not really focused on as part of the learning plan. Uh, we see sometimes efforts, you know, don't really turn, insights don't always turn into actions where that's not attended to. So we really try to encourage our clients not to give that short shrift, that that whole, all that backend stuff is really, really important um, to connect it to your business. And don't, you know, don't overlook that. Don't let that be a blind spot, I guess would be my advice. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for being here today. Uh, and I know we have a jam-packed episode full of some really great insights that you gave us all. So if anyone is listening and you want to learn more about the Future Buy study and its findings, I'm going to leave all those links for you in the show notes for Joe's recent presentation. Uh, there is also actually a preview report that you can sign up for, and it's completely free, where you can see um, some real graphs and numbers pulled straight from this last wave of the Future Buy study. So one last thank you to you, Joe. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Thinking Ahead. For more information on today's topic, you can click the link in the description. And please make sure to leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you like about the show. And of course, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button to keep up to date on the latest insights. We'll see you next time so you can keep thinking ahead.